Hello, 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 and welcome to this season six of the Legends podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of Sarah Faruya Creative. <laughs> and today is episode three of season six, which is all about game changers. Now, you may recognize the person we've got here today. It's Angela Ortiz Petas. Hi, Ange. Hi, Sarah. This is a very, very special episode in uh, in many ways. And maybe Ange will tell us all about that later. So Ange is a marketing strategist. She works with CrossFit Nishiazabu along with her partner and husband, Nick. She is also the marketing strategist at SF Creative, my company. <laughs> and um, she's one of my creative team. She is also a sustainability consultant and author of this terrific book called Place to Grow, which is all about uh, sustainable change in uh, response to emergencies and what she learned from that. Fantastic book. Love it. She is also my client, collaborator, colleague and beloved. And I was recently so honoured to be her maid of honour, one of her maids of honour at her wedding. And in fact, on Sunday, we celebrated something special, but also her one month anniversary. And I'm so happy that I'll be play I, I will be celebrating that with you as well. Or we've just celebrated that on Sunday. So yeah, very recently married to her beloved Nicholas Petas. I'm actually in honour of that wearing my maids of honour outfit today. <laughs> <laughs> Maid of honor, lady of honor, matron of honor, whatever that was. But that was one of my highlights of my life, actually. It was just so fantastic. But wait a second, Ange, you're back for the third time today. Why is that? Great question. We're going to flip the script on you today, people, because when Sarah and I aligned almost a year ago and started working together, we said we wanted to make something beautiful and filled with impact. So this year, September, as a team, we were chatting about where we wanted the podcast to go and, you know, expanding on the theme. And we were like, wait a second, who is like the OG game changer? No. <laughs> who is someone that we really have all been inspired by? And suddenly we were like, Sarah Fudia, you need to get on the podcast. So I'm here today to interview you. And I'm going to ask you right away with the first question, which is what is game changing mean to you? What is that as a person? Is there someone in your life that's had an amazing influence on you? And what does it mean to you to be a game changer? God, I've been thinking about this so hard, but ultimately I allow, I haven't made any notes. I just allow what comes out of my mouth to come out. And first of all, thank you. I, I am a little bit like, really? Oh, by the way, also game changers. I lit this little candle, but it's a candle that you made. So <laughs> that's when you. I was going through my candle making hobby phase. <laughs> oh, we, we all have those phases. I bought a guitar recently. It's over there. I'm going to give it away at my party next, uh, uh, that, that happened on Sunday. So, <laughs> um, what does game changing mean to me? And what is a game changer? Well, I mean, we all know the kind of the big name people and it's not necessarily that for me. I think that game changing people and game changers have a huge breadth and depth for many ways to lead a life. That's what I think. And I think that they have this, this sense of breadth and depth. They have an enormous capacity for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, so 
so what I mean by that, I mean, you and I are, I'm in the coaching business and you're in the wellness business uh, in part of your part of your work is not wellness, but fitness business, I suppose. And our prime products are premium products. It's quite costly, right. To, to join my premium coaching programs and your uh, premium, you know, uh, join a, a membership box. Yeah, exactly. Memberships and stuff like that. But for me, game changers are people who can take that, but also that they can reach across. And I don't mean to say down, but what I mean is into different income brackets, into different phases of lives as well. So, you know, I could be game changing at like the C-suite level. Mm. Fine. But also I think that I need to be part of my community here. I need to be, uh, well, for game for me, game changers are people who are part of every part of their community. So it's it's like their neighbors, their the people across the road from them, the people who are that we are constantly educated about the breadth and depth of all lives, while at the same time being profitable. We often talk about holding paradox, right? So it's like, yes, I have premium coaching programs, and I want to be a prosperous person who has, you know excess wealth to be able to buy nice things and so on. And I also want to to be able to provide services and opportunities to people across income brackets, life circumstances, and so on. So when I see game changing people, that's how I that's how I see them. Or, or mental wellness or mental health or uh body condition all those kinds of things. And I'm constantly kind of learning from people about things like that. Um, Somebody who changed the game for me when I was young was a woman at my church. Well, I used to be a Catholic and I used to go to church every week. I wanted to be a priest. And um, thanks, Catholics. (laughs) (laughs) That door was swiftly closed. But um, (laughs) so I wanted to be a priest. And there was one woman called Colette, Colette Murphy, who's since passed away a number of years ago of cancer and um she was the person who led the kind of uh bible study for the youth group so it's not it, it that sounds really really formal but what it was was in my church when the sermon was on the priests in my church were really clever and they knew that all young people would be bored by the sermon right so we would all ship off into different age groups and this was when i was maybe 12 or 13 And the way she spoke to me, oh my God, I've got goosebumps thinking about it. And the way she talked to us, it was like the first person who had treated us like, well, certainly me, like an Mm. adult or like an individual or like a a fully formed person ever. And the way I felt was, it was just amazing. Like I felt no shame. I felel very humbled. I felt very alive. And I just felt all those things of possibility. I have a feeling that a lot of the way that I run groups now comes from that incident, but not consciously. I'm only putting that together now. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, so so she was just terrific. And I think she also influenced me in a weird way that like she'd lived in for some reason. I don't know why she and her husband, Pete, had lived in Yugoslavia, as it was then. Or no, I think it was Czech Republic, Czech Republic that was called Czechoslovakia then. And and they'd been on television singing. And I just thought, what is, I mean, that's the power of stories, right, as well. So I think game changers also tell very authentic stories. I was like, mm. why were you on television? Oh, you know, it's because of music. And again, it's like, that just sows a seed in my mind. If I hadn't had that story or had that experience with her, then 
or if she'd been too kind of modest or worried about what the other people of church would think if she told them she'd been on TV or, you know, something like that, then um, I would never have heard that story. And lo and behold, I've come over to Tokyo where you can always get some kind of level of celebrity being, uh, you know, non-Japanese and out there in the world. Um, and then I see that like, and I don't just mean like charities. I don't mean donating to charity. I mean, people who can put themselves in. I would say like, since you're on the call with me, your what you did your work over the last 10 years that, you know, recently came to its kind of natural uh, transition, that that ability for you to get right into those communities who desperately mm -hmm. needed you, you weren't just, you weren't running galas, you were, but like, just running galas, which, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's also a very, very necessary piece of the pie. You know, being on uh, RE, uh, Refugee Empowerment International's board of directors, we have to raise money, right? We have to download the money from, from Tokyo and then fund our projects over in the places where we have our projects, Africa, Thai Myanmar border and uh, Lebanon. And they just need resources, simple as. They don't need us to go over. They have their their own management systems, right? They are game changers. They're the game changers. We're not. <laughs> we may go over to visit them for encouragement and to be visible. I'm sure the same as you go up to um, Tohoku as well to visit. But you don't go there to kind of impart your wisdom on people. You go there, to, right? <laughs> you go there to to be present and to to show good faith and to to see what's happening as well. Mm -hmm. So. I think that's really important as well is that game changing people have got it's a bit I, I I try and go away from like proverbs and like set pieces but like you've got a little no it's not skin in the game I think it's that you have this incredible capacity to be able to hold a lot of stuff across the board and I like it when I get challenged in a way that makes me unbelievably uncomfortable but not in a kind of like oh god that is such bullshit kind of way and yes we can swear on this podcast by the way so please go right ahead um but in a in a way of like oh that's that's oh so that happens yeah so that happened to me four years ago again this is another game-changing woman called Layla Saad she wrote a book called Me and mm. White Supremacy and that just blew my mind out of the water and blew every image that I had of myself out of the water. I think I'm still recovering from that, actually. Not recovering, but still no uncovering, discovering and being present in that because it's really, it just changed the lens through which I look at everything and it humbled me to the point where I just know nothing. Like it, it brought me down to zero, no, minus 100%. <laughs> and each 1% wow. brings me towards zero and uh, but there's no zero for me and that's good that's that's good to know there's um another woman who i think is an incredible game changer called rebecca baruki and she started up in response to <laughs> uh looking around her publisher she went to a like our oh, top publishers conference and looked around and was like I am the darkest skinned person in this room and I am light. <laughs> What's happening here? And I'm wow. not seeing many queer people either. <laughs> and so she started her own publishing thing. Now, remember two years ago, I was like, I'm going to start a publishing thing, like real ADHD thing. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to start a publishing company. <laughs> um, that was because I was inspired by her and I just thought I can do this. And I was so kind of 
up for it. But as it happens, like I just, uh, it was just a kind of, it was like guitar or, you know, <laughs> it was another kind of amazing idea, but it, it's become its own thing now. It will, it will morph into something else, right? It morphs into something else. The, the big idea morphs into something else. But she started a company up called Row House Publishing, and they're publishing the authors that wouldn't ordinarily, would usually get overlooked by the big publishing houses. But also if you're on a, lower income you know how you know how much it takes to to write a book right or to make any art right mm -hmm. from from where you start to the finish there's a massive gap where you might not be earning money so mm -hmm. they also filled in that gap to giving people a living wage to so instead of doing mm -hmm. like a we'll give you one percent now and then ten percent later or something like that they're like we're going to give you thirty percent now and do you think you can live off that while you write your book? <laughs> you know, or do you think you can go part time while you write your book so that people are really well supported? Because otherwise mm -hmm. people on lower incomes can't write books and make art. Right. <laughs> so I think we're talking a lot about resources here. And then another person I think who's a terrific game changer right now, who both of us uh, know professionally and personally is Kate Kamoshita. And yeah. she's really changing the game in two areas. I think one is education where she's really helping people to make good decisions about their higher education choices. She's very good at that. And the other one is um, ADHD and just the impact that she has had on people over the last year and the kind of reporting that she's had over the last year has been incredible, incredibly supportive towards me. She's quite open that I'm her client as well. So we have a kind of two-way two -way thing going there as well. And when I see somebody who's like that, and I think this is one place where I will take my place as a game changer is when I see somebody like that, I'm like, I want eyes on that person mm -hmm. and my people aren't her people yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you know, I don't have a huge social media following or a huge mailing list yet, but just that idea that I can get eyes on that person so that they can then kind of help people. And she has, Again, she has premium rates. She has ways like we did it all for free. So that means that we were able to touch people out there. And I think, you know, and she finds ways to help people. We always have that caveat there. Like if you have difficulties, then please let me know. Mm -hmm. And there's also other ways to do things like that, which is what, like you can buy one place, two places, and the other place will go to somebody who's on a lower income mm -hmm. and so on. So this is what I find truly game changing is there's a terrific amount that happens at the kind of NASA level or the, you know, the, the like automobile level or Elon Musk's. Yeah. And I don't want to mention names, you know, <laughs> but, you, you know, I think that like people who are kind of ordinary, not ordinary, but just mm. in the world, I don't think that you and I are particularly ordinary, but we had to find our resources creatively. Mm. I'm very lucky. I come from a very generous background and parents are teachers. So there's always been expectations and a steady, nice life there, which wasn't the same for the people I was at school with because I lived in Liverpool when the docks were closing down and things like that. But teaching was a very steady job that, you know, meant that my family lived with little fear in that regard. Yeah, that's so game changers. I've mentioned a few names there. I'm sure there are many that I've forgotten I think that it's people who have this incredible capacity for breadth and depth and openness, no, not openness, but breadth and depth and acquisition of new information and. Well, I think you've. Bullshit, you've... For you, but great bullshit filters as well. 
Sorry, yeah, you, go ahead. I'm talking no, away. You really, you've really shared it from, for me, it feels like such a holistic place. Yeah. Not just the literal translation. Cause you could look at the word literally and be like, oh yeah, wow, I get that. But you really put stories and people behind it in a way that, that really helps me see that there is so many ways to look at it and there's so many roles and so many impacts people are making. I love that you brought up Kate because, you know, she's doing some amazing work and like she's helping me out with my daughter's journey in university and it has saved our relationship like nothing else. And I love, you know, to, it's really interesting to be reminded of, of all the ways that you make beautiful impact on the world and don't have to be like a gajillionaire to do it. Well, my being a gajillionaire, though, I'm not going to tell any lies about that. (laughs) What resonates with me on this, though, is the order is not set. Like, I really grew up with first become the gajillionaire, then make the impact. And my own journey and hearing you talk about what it means to you reminds me that that order doesn't exist. It's not like the universe or decided this. And sometimes you can have the other journey. You know, it can go the other way. And, And game changers, I think. Maybe they see those rules or those constructs or those, you know, doors in place, but they don't follow them necessarily. And that's that's quite a beautiful thing to to have or to have connection to, which I think this is what your podcast really brings us into. It introduces us to to simple stories of people around us, beyond us. And these can be friendships and or just inspirations to help us. Yeah. Everywhere. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You just hit on something. So, yeah, I think. Game changers question the order. And I want to mention one more. (laughs) And this was my last kind of corporate or company or office job that I had when I was in England. Not very exciting. I was uh, in the sensitive information bureau. I was one of the managers in a sensitive information bureau that had to have like home office clearance and all this kind of stuff. We liaised with the police and we helped people who were having problems with their phone lines. It was all landlines then. And um, my boss was called Jill Hadley. And I didn't like her. I kind of liked her, but I didn't like her as well. I found her quite cold, bit, just a bit, I don't know. I just didn't really vibe with her at all. But when I left, when I said I was going to leave and move to Japan, she did everything possible. I was, I just didn't think she would do this. And again, it's like that the order is not set. So in my mind, I constructed, dreamed up this image of this person. It was cold, mean, this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. But she wasn't, she was just really effective, really focused on things. And as it happened, incredibly kind and generous, right? So probably if we were to look at a Lumina profile, lots of red, lots of blue right? Really just left-brained, very straightforward. She she would pick the phone up and ask anything of anybody in a way that I found so risky. When I left that company, she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll put your end date at this. If you hand your notice in on this date, not today, then that will take you into this. You'll You'll be able to claim all your holidays and get your bonus at the end of the year. And she facilitated all of that for me. And I was like, again, it was just so humbling in so many ways, humbling because it was like, wow, you would do that for me. Humbling because I was like, you're not a bitch. You're great. (laughs) And then, and then I was like, and then it's, so that's humbling as well. Like for me to question in everything and and humbling that she facilitated all that for me. And again, without consciously knowing it, I think I've brought that into, into, my life now a little bit it's like mm-hmm. how can I be facilitative of, of people's lives 
and when I've not done that my of the people who work for me when I've not done that when I've ignored that especially with people who've got loads of kids or stuff like that with the people who work for me or they their capacity is a bit under because of x y and z when I've not been facilitative in that way it's not it's not turned out well for either of us mm. but it, I mean because of who, who I am and the work that I do we work it through and then you come out stronger at the other end but that's not I'm not I'm not suggesting that as a, <laughs> as a way to do things okay so I'll, I'll stop now because that's kind of game changers there's so many out there they just have a really optimistic and positive influence on not just the people who are their clients but also everything that's happening around them I think I hope so anyway and and that's what I'd strive for like when my my local <laughs> when my local coffee shop had a massive flood and had to close down and the, they put out a call saying like this has happened we're so depressed we've lost all our equipment everything and the person upstairs owns the building and wasn't properly insured we are right mm -hmm. I was like okay what can I do I will donate to their you know I used actually used clothes swap money oh. so the clothes swap that I run I used clothes swap money to to fund them because I think I really believe in small business they're a tiny tiny little place and they do amazing coffee and they're real aficionados you know they're they're really part of their craft there and I love just I just love that they exist right mm -hmm. don't go there very often but I love that they exist and um I think small businesses is so important because they keep the streets safe. They keep the streets alive. They keep contact with people. And they're part of their craft. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, that, that that's the color, the culture that you see in the street and in the yeah. community and the city and stuff. And that's a brilliant way of putting it, I think. And we could we could probably talk about what about and on what on it means like no, forever. Like, oh, no, this uh, but I want <laughs> to hear a little bit more about your background, where you're from, how did you end up in Japan, mm -hmm. any cool stories from your childhood. Uh, but before I do, let me just introduce you properly to the the listeners today. So, in case you don't know, Sarah Fudia is the founder, executive, and life coach at Sarah Fudia Creative. Ta-da! <laughs> the secret coaching sauce behind many influential women and men in Japan and beyond. She's the host of the Legends podcast, which is about many, many ways to lead a life and people's unique stories. And we are just into its sixth season. I love this quote about you. Someone said, Sarah's no bullshit attitude is not for everyone, but it is a breath of fresh air. And it is so true. Uh, a little bit about her business. She runs year-long coaching programs. February is the new January and shorter coaching programs and an intimate mastermind. She also runs leadership journeys and programs for organizations and companies who are serious about real long-term sustainable change and leadership development with a difference. From 2011 to 2013, she was the president of Few Japan, which is a women's empowerment organization. She also has run Tokyo's largest clothing swap, just rebranded to Style Swap with the aim of building community, conscious consumption, and highlighting people doing great things around sustainable commerce. She sits on the board of directors for Refugees International and is on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force of the British Chamber of Commerce. She has been living and working in Japan since 2001. 
She is a trained systems coach and is a certified Lumina and Savile Wave Psychrometrics and holds a BSc in human psychology and human biology. Wow, that's a lot. But a few years ago, she fulfilled a lifelong dream to live by the sea. So now she lives on the sacred shores of Zushi, which is just south of Tokyo. And she enjoys sea swimming, gazing at the photography of the ever-changing sky. I would like also to mention that another thing Sarah loves is great conversations. <laughs> Ones where you feel expanded and like you went to new places in your mind. So please join me in welcoming the mind behind Sarah Fudia Creative, a business that is bringing commerce done differently through imagination, story, style, and coaching. Sarah, I am thrilled to be interviewing you today on your own incredible podcast, The Legends. <laughs> so I would like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your childhood, your background and upbringing. Give us the juice. <laughs> oh, God, so many things. So um, I'm 51 now, and I was born and raised just over the water from Liverpool. So I was born and raised four miles from Liverpool in a little peninsula called the Wirral, and it sits between Liverpool and Wales. So the Liverpudlians called Scousers call us woollybacks because they say we're really Welsh, and the Welsh call us Scousers, which is Liverpool. <laughs> I've never heard uh, Liverpoolians. That's hilarious. I love yeah, it. Liverpoolians. Yeah. So, um, so I think that that's a really big cultural kind of. It's a bit like being from Chiba, I suppose. You know, it's a really big kind of cultural influence being from that part of the world. Because of course, Liverpool is, has such an influence everywhere because of the Beatles and because of football. So, you know, I think that's part, really part of who I am. But neither my mum nor dad are from there. So that's something that I've recently been exploring because I've been living in Japan for 21 years. It's like I wasn't actually from there. <laughs> so like my mum and dad weren't from there. I'm from there, but they're not from there. And I've been like, oh, that's like me. I'm from here, but I'm not from here. <laughs> or like you as well. <laughs> so it's like if I had kids, they'd be from here, but I'm not from here and my husband's not from Tokyo. So, you know, it's it's just really interesting to really think about my ancestry in that way. I was really lucky. I had three gorgeous grandparents. One of my grandparents died and my mum's dad died when she was six months pregnant with me. He died on June the 18th and I was born on September the 18th. And so I think that probably had a massive influence on on me and mm. definitely on my mum. I, I really admire her for that, like having her first baby when she was in so much grief. That's something I also think about a lot as well and process in the a lot in the grief circle that I also run with Gretchen Mura. So I was born with a full head of curly red hair <laughs> and I was gigantic I was like nine pounds <laughs> my mum was in labor with me for like 50 plus hours poor thing wow and then my brother came a little bit later and there's just two of us and I I you know I I had what would be described as a happy childhood it was the 70s and the 80s some of the things that I would say really really typify me are like I was very very tall always really really tall really clever really ginger really ginger haired um really 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 bright white and um I stuck out like a sore thumb and I was also old in my year so my birthday's in September so when I entered school I could read I was like 
basically look like an adult. I just basically look like a dude. <laughs> my mum cut off all my hair. So it was just this really short ginger hairstyle. I stood literally a foot taller than everybody. And I was in, I was in the class. I was, you know, just almost five. And I was in the class who, with people who were three last week. And the gap was just huge, mm-hmm. I suppose. Uh, like now I look back on it, I suppose the gap was huge because I can remember going into class and people like wailing, oh, mom. And like the other tall kid in the school who I won't say his full name, but his name was Mike, was just crying so much, mom, 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 that you throw up. And I can remember just looking at these people and thinking, what is going on? <laughs> this is great. I'm in a classroom full of kids. There's a been kitchen in the corner, like a, a a kitchen and play area in the corner. Not that that was the last time I had any interest in a kitchen, but like you know, like there was like a little place to play house and all this kind of stuff. I can just remember being like, what? But I'd already been to like a Montessori school prior to that, so mm. I'd probably been quite well primed and stuff like that. And yeah, I was really old, so it's really interesting, isn't it? So like that first teacher, Mrs. Wise. And I'm sure you know this as well from having an educational background is like that reception age. It takes a very specific skill. So from four to five in the UK, it takes a really specific skill. There's a, it's just, again, you have to have a lot of breadth for people because you've got the, old, the, the one who's just been three and then the one who's five who wants to read a proper book. And, you know, and then you've got the ADHD kid who's bouncing off the wall. And then the other ADHD kid, that's me, who's kind of unusual. <laughs> just like hungry for everything, wants to do everything. So then because of that age gap, they had a system in the primary school that I went to where they split the class so that kids born in the first half of the year went into another class with another woman called Mrs. McCarran. And she was vile. Like she was one of those horror teachers, you know, and she hated me because she didn't have the breadth and the depth. Mm. She just didn't have it. And so she would berate me over and over again because I would get easily distracted and because I finished my work really quickly and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is just, I mean, it's textbook ADHD stuff. Mm -hmm. This is, and she would just be horrible to me to the point where me and my mum, like my mum got involved in this as well, called a buttercup the cow. (laughs) She would call me the tortoise and the hare. You know that story, I think you call it the tortoise and the rabbit or the turtle and the rabbit or the, in England, we call it the tortoise and the hare, where the hare goes running off and the tortoise kind of comes past and is like, see ya, like that. I'm like, oh my God, the hare had ADHD. <laughs> and even before I had the language for this, like, you know, Kate and I talked about this a lot and she's like, yeah, you totally have ADHD. So if you see me messing with my hair and stuff, this is apparently called stimming. It's a way for me to get some sensory input and calm down a bit. Mm. And yet the books about women will tell you, don't play with your hair. So you're taken seriously. I say, if you see somebody playing with the hair, they may be stimming because they're on the, you know, Mm -hmm. the spectrum. Um, It doesn't mean they're a dickhead or they are, you know, incapable. Just chill, chill about the hair. (laughs) Focus on something different, like the output or how you can support them. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. So she would like really disparaging me, like you are the hair and -and so-and-so is the tortoise. And I'm like, I need a rest after a while. It's all going out. I'm firing so hard on so many cylinders. And so now I just, I love that little five-year-old me, six-year-old me with a full head of ginger hair, cut like a dude, like (laughs) 
ugliest sin like I was minging. I mean, people will say, oh, no, you were so cute. I, I, I just wasn't. I never got treated cute, right? That wasn't that wasn't what I received at all. Luckily, my husband does now. He treats me cute. He sees, I don't know, that's probably why we're together now. It's like he sees me something different. And I'm not saying this to be a victim. I find it all fascinating, to be honest with mm. you. And, you know, I still I still did really well at school because academically it was quite easy for me up until mm. the point where you had to work more independently, you know? Yeah, so there was that. And then I go into the next class when I was six to seven years old and there was a woman called Mrs. Kenny. And she, again, she had the breadth. She had the depth. Mm-hmm. She was brilliant. Her her husband used to come in at Christmas and have games with us and make piñatas and stuff. Like, I didn't even know what a piñata was at the time, but like, that's what it was now. I realized it was like a box with loads of sweets in it that we had to open bit to open and she just got me somehow or mm. she had that breadth and depth to to have everybody but by this point the class was starting to twig that was something off with me as well so they mm. then I would get called like posh uh snob stuck up what else uh swat a swat in England means that you're like super brainy clever but not in a good way like brainy lanky uh lanky means super tall skinny uh, gin, every variety of the word ginger and um, I don't know it just I think you know it, was, it wasn't fun but and I had great friends as well don't get me wrong I had a good time at school you know I used to love playing and I, I had such an amazing imagination I would like create stories in the playground to get everybody mm-hmm. playing games with me and stuff like that but yeah so that was like constantly the kind of humming underlying thing is there's something wrong with you and it's not good there's something different about you and it's a bit shit. But she was amazing and she said she could have, she told my mum she could have left the class and left me in there and I could have taken charge. <laughs> like if ever she had to leave the class for some emergency, she'd put me at the front of the class to be in charge. And you can imagine how popular that made me as well. But, you know, <laughs> sh- and I know. So that's interesting. So, you know, now I can kind of follow those breadcrumbs yeah. of the kind of teachers who had that breadth to be mm-hmm. able to hold you. And and I had met, I like in primary school, I had fantastic teachers as well. There were, there were some duds, but like there was only two dudes in there and they were my fine, two final year teachers. Mm. And they just were so fabulous. And I was really sporty at the time as well. I'm not sure I was sporty. I just like being the captain of teams, I think. <laughs> But I was sporty. I was like, I used to love playing football with the boys and I used Mm. to love playing cricket. I was quite good at cricket. And my dad would teach me how to bowl and play cricket and stuff in our back garden. They also put a netball hoop on the wall for me so I could practice doing hoops. But also I was actually in defense in netball. So I would practice defending as well on my own. I don't know how I did that, but hey, ADHD has many gifts and being (laughs) able to imagine shit like that is one of them. Yeah, so I just did brilliantly at school. I actually ended up coming out. Did you enjoy studies and or, you know, activities at school? Like, were you kind of, how was it like to to learn? Like when, let's just say, like when you had a a teacher that could could get you, did you enjoy the numbers and the dates and the stories from history or the art or? Okay, (laughs) so interesting. You should say that numbers, no. Dates, no. Uh, Stories from history, no. Those are my three worst things. Like history just confused me. And I understand now that's an ADHD thing because all the dates are a bit like, if you tell me the story, I can tell you a story about any of that. But if you mm-hmm. ask me to remember the thirds and the fourths and the eights and the that that becomes really that becomes a kind of spreadsheety. I was brilliant at writing stories. I was brilliant at English. 
um, there was me and another guy, Mark. I won't say his surname, but I've seen him recently and we talked a, a little bit about this. He was the maths genius and I was the English genius. Uh, genius, you know, uh, anyway. And he and I kind of went head to head at who would come top of the class. It was usually me. And then in the end, I came top of the school and he was like, oh! and then our other friend <laughs> Dominic always came third. Yeah, so honestly, a lot of my childhood was st being st tallest, mm. oldest, cleverest, mm. uh, worst, st worst. Well, you know that kind. Of, well, probably, but just like, but usually it was like aimed in that way. And it, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'd like to reclaim some of that. Actually, in a way, I'd like to reclaim some of that kind of that. And I was driven by it as well. Like I was mm. proud of it in a way. But again, like. And when I think about it, if I look at me, I'm like, man, I was a resilient little kid taking on all that stuff, all that kind of berating and kind of mm -hmm. piss taking and put down, putting down and making sure that I was, by the time I got to like 11 or 12, I'd kind of learned to pretend that I hadn't done some things. Mm -hmm. So me and my friend Leanne, we put on a massive show for the whole school. We got our friend to pretend to film it because he was an interesting guy as well who loved radio and television. And he used to make cameras out of cardboard box. He pretended to film it. And we put on a whole show where she and I sang and danced and other people, we, we pulled together all these different talents. This sounds familiar. <laughs> pulled together all these different talents from different areas and put on a show. And then when people were like, oh, Sarah and Leanne did this amazing thing, I would say, no, 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 it was Leanne. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's something that was like 11 or 12 already kind of, I'd started to learn that because I would get called a show off as well. I mean, and I probably, I probably was, but also mm -hmm. give me a break. <laughs> Just, I'm just learn. trying my best. <laughs> yeah, but we learn that maybe that's not the right way to behave. And at that young age, it's so easy for us to go, oh, okay, I'm not going to do that and to shrink back. Yeah. But did that pattern continue? How did that change as you went into middle school or high school? What were what was university like? Ooh. How did you? Um... Middle school and high school got progressively more difficult no I mean again I was on the school teams I was on the orchestra I was in all the musicals I sang in in not in church but not in the choir we didn't have a choir I sang uh solos in church mm. I, I uh, taught the little kids about bible stuff like the two to four-year-olds <laughs> that was a treat and I uh wanted to be a priest as I mentioned earlier and I you know, I had fallouts and, and things like that, again, because like there's a lot of edges from me and because mm. of ADHD, one of the things is that you tend to have difficulty in relationships sometimes. So, you know, there was this kind of push and pull a lot for me. And, you know, there was a lot of push and pull at home as well. You know, I think it's nice if you've got a safe haven to go to at home, which is quite stable and, you know, where like it's like, okay, that happened to you at school, but now we think you're fabulous or whatever it is. But, yeah. you know, so it's it's always nice to have that as well. But when it came to, I made a huge mistake, Ange, and I try not to do this, but I still do it. I still do it now. And I tried not to do this. This is why I left my job 10 years ago. Because that's what we're doing. We're celebrating 10 years in business, right? Yes. When I did my, what we call GCSEs, like, but you know, one of my things is that for many of my clients, I'm helping them to graduate from school because they'll always say to me, oh, I did, 
I did so well at school and then blah, 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 blah happens. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, we're still at school. But since you asked, <laughs> when I did my GCSEs, which is the exam you take when you're 16 in the UK, I got 10 GCSEs. Our school did 10. Most schools did eight because we did RE because we were a Catholic school. So we did religious education. And then for some reason, we did an extra one as well. So I did like English language, English literature, French geography, RE and maths. I got A's in all of those, right? Mm-hmm. The maths was a total freak, but I just think it was a really easy exam because it was the first ever GCSE. So that was quite good. So uh, so I got A's in all of those. Then I got B in uh, biology, chemistry, physics, because I wanted to be a doctor. And that was quite good, actually, uh, C and R, because lot, not many people actually passed. And I don't think anybody got an A, maybe one. So, you know, that was so I did really well at GCSE. And then at A level, that's when the ADHD kicked in. I can see now. Mm-hmm. But also all the other things that come with ADHD, self-medicating, unregulated emotions, wild, rebellious behavior. <laughs> it was fabulous. But also if I had a redo, I might do things a bit differently halfway through my A levels. I completely broke down. We were on holiday in the south of France in the caravan. And I said to my mum and dad, I want to quit, mm-hmm. start again. But now I want to do English language, English literature, drama and French. Mm. And my dad, with tears in his eyes, when we were walking around a cemetery in um, near Nishinipori, with tears in his eyes, said that day you came into my room and said to me, should I do this? Should I change? And I advised you not to, to stick with the sciences. He had tears in his eyes. He goes, I wish I'd, I wish I'd said change. It was just like, I wish I'd said change. Because from then, God bless him. He, he's, a, he's a man who can, for me anyway, I don't know about other people, but for me, he was very good at, at taking on what feedback I had for him and then mm-hmm. incorporating it and then delivering apologies back or recognizing me. It's very empowering, very humbling when people do that. Yeah. It's terribly damaging when people don't listen to you and gaslight yeah. you. And he he's never done that to me. So that felt like a great relief for me as well. That was probably back in 2008 when they were visiting Japan or nine. I can't remember. So then the rest is just like a chaotic kind of bound <laughs> to here, actually. <laughs> How did you... Because I know, I mean, at one point you made the decision to come to Japan, but what was leading up to that? Like in university, what did you study mm-hmm. and how did that set you up for that, you know, becoming a coach or going into the journey that led you into coaching? Well, I think the journey for coaching started at church, actually. Our church was a very, although it was a Roman Catholic church, it's not the kind of, you know, outside the clinic kind of, you know, that kind of Catholic mm-hmm. church that I was in. Um, they were very open-minded and very kind of more like folky, <laughs> like kind of like folky people. So that started it. Wow. So wow. it was like I was teaching Bible classes to the kids and stuff like that. But when I was 20, I had a complete break where I was like, uh, well, I'll, I can tell you about that university. I wrote an extended essay and stuff like that. But that that's where it started there. And that sense of community and that sense of the breadth of people you meet. So I knew everybody from the 90-year-old woman who still wore the black veil to the kids who, and, you know, my friend used to say to me, I always had like 20 kids on me. Auntie Sarah started very early on, right? Like I'd be going up to communion, like with two kids on me, like monkeys like that. 
<laughs> the body of Christ. Amen. <laughs> and then um, when I was 17, actually, I was invited to become what's called a Eucharistic minister. So any Catholics out there will know how kind of like, whoa, that is for a 17 year old. But again, in the church, I was recognized and loved and nurtured somehow mm-hmm. by the priests. And I got on really well. And the 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 older people in the church I didn't kind of vibe so much with the people of the same age as me who weren't at my school but like the kids and the older people and the priests I just love talking to them and debating and having conversations and all this kind of stuff so I was giving out the bread and wine from when I was 17 Mm. 20 so I just got that sense of community and I thought I would love to be doing this as my job not giving out bread and wine stuff that's that's also something that's that's happened as well (laughs) This feeling that you were experiencing, you're like, how do I get more of this? How can I do this for a living? And you thought, oh, become a priest. Yes, exactly. And (laughs) Margaret Thatcher was the the prime minister. So I was like, all right then. But then I started to see cracks. Uh, What was the question again? Well, the question was sort of, we, we understood that you got the feeling from your childhood, like early childhood. And I'm kind of wondering, like, did something change throughout university or how did university play into to this journey? Because you mentioned that, like, you really think the seed for coaching and the calling for that, for being that, you know, like that community, that awareness of the community, holding that breath and and being part of it and loving it really happened early whereas yeah a lot of times we assume oh you studied this in university so now you are this person and we forget (laughs) that no often our skills in our chosen craft come from a very young age from and from a very non-professional space just really innately part of you that's such a good observation Ange yeah totally so I think that I always had this kind of leadership quality I was called bossy a lot and I was bossy but you know, I just didn't know any any other way to be. Again, mm-hmm. I was a foot taller than everybody else. I was treated in a quite adult way from a young age. And so, but I can remember like people used to tell me things and it's not something that I created or crafted. This is what happened. So I can remember being on a religious retreat and one of the other girls came up to me, she was 14 and she said, I think I'm pregnant. And then two months later in school, all the rumors started, so-and-so's pregnant, so-and-so's pregnant. And I was like, oh, my God, she is. But I didn't say anything because I just kind of kept that to myself. And so I can see there the kind of somehow there was something happening there. And then when I was at university, so the university story is I wanted to be a doctor. I started going, I got a couple of offers from universities to be to get into medical school, right? And um, that's why I took biology, chemistry, maths. I tried to take French at the same time. Disaster. Of course, ADHD is like, yes, I want to do French. Let's do French. And then it's like, why you don't have no capacity to do this whatsoever? But I didn't know it. It's the gift that keeps giving, right? And also, like, they were just subjects that were really not suited to me. I didn't get the grades. I, you need to get three Bs, I think. At the time, now it would be like A pluses across the board. But like then I was offered three Bs to get into medical school. And I can remember interviewing and being in the interview room with the other people and chatting to them, making small talk and just thinking, this is not, this is not right. This is not the place for me. I remember coming back from, I think it was not an interview at Nottingham. I was on the train. I was must have been 18. And I just was looking out the window, just sobbing because I was like, this is not the place for me. So I popped into my one of my best friend's houses, Matthew, Matthew Delamere. And um, I just said to him, this is just wrong. This is wrong. Everything that mm. I'm doing is wrong. And he gave me, he gave me a copy of the serenity prayer on a little card. And, um, oh no, it wasn't. It was desiderata. Um, 
I was one of those anyway. I think it was desiderata, go placidly um, amongst the haste and speed. And I kept it in my wallet for ages. And I suppose then he's a game changer for me as well. <laughs> Just remembered that. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so anyway, that that kind of, but I didn't listen. I didn't listen to myself, right? I didn't yeah. listen to myself and I didn't trust myself. I think mm. people with ADHD often don't because they've been getting all these messages all, them, all their lives. So it was just, uh, that was a big mistake. But what it led me to is, well, it led me to you, so that's nice. But it led me to then go for the next best thing, which for me was psychology, human psychology and mm. human biology. And I, I reckon half the people on my course were also failed medics, honestly. So, <laughs> um. And then that psychology gave me a really good grounding for what I do today. But also the human biology gives me those kind of like really scientific smarts. Mm -hmm. So I understand the human body at a level that most people probably don't because we went into like the cell of the cell of the cell of the cell, yeah. <laughs> the mitochondria and then what's inside of yes. mitochondria and then what's that made. I mean, at that point I was like, Boop, <laughs> um, then, yeah. So, and it also supported the human psychology as well. So that it was, it was really grounding that side of things as well. So that was brilliant. But I also, for the first year, I continued going to church. And for my, in my second year for my psychology extended essay, I had to write like a 10,000 word essay. And I chose to do it on women in Christianity because by that point I'd already got like, a, I think I'd read the female eunuch maybe, and I'd already got a sense of feminism. In fact, I, I got a sense of feminism from my mum and my mm. grandma and, you know, all the women in my family who all worked. My, my grandma had a post office. She had her own business. They'd had a restaurant before that. And then my auntie took over that. And then my mum took over, that my mum was a teacher and she got to be a senior teacher and she was ambitious in that way as well. And my dad was also a senior teacher, so he was ambitious in that way too. Um, so I just always had these these women around me, so I knew that. And then I also, because I wanted to be a priest, I was like, hang on, how come this hasn't happened yet? So I decided to do a psychology essay on women in in Christianity and I called it the female Christa and there was this beautiful image of uh, a uh, a crucified naked woman it was just oh. so beautiful and um, that was called the female Christa mm. I mean I was never very good at writing essays from science uh, for science stuff because all the cita citations and all like I just wanted to kind of free flow and I want to do the research then free flow from the research but I don't want to have to be like 19.1 <laughs> like this so I found that really hard work my tutor at the time was a woman called Petra Boylan who's since has written for all kinds of stuff cosmopolitan and all these kind of stuff on feminist and sexual issues and things like that mm -hmm. so she was really encouraging of that actually my final essay my final thesis at university was an exploration into the sexual behavior of college students and that was both a qualitative and quantitative thing and that came from because when I was at university I did a four-year degree and on our third year we went out into industry and I went to South Birmingham Health Authority's sexual health services and it was I was in the HIV sector so again oh. if anybody ever wonders like if anybody ever thinks that ever, anything anything that I'm doing is performative or uh, virtue signaling they can literally fuck off because I've been doing this stuff for 30 years right so at that point I spent a year uh, there was two things they needed psych psychological kind of or statistical background reports written on and one was 
complementary therapies, mm. right? And the other one was um, the phone lines. And these two things, it's like one is biology and one is sociology kind of thing. This is really important because this is really, um, and again, a massive part of my story. So this is the 1993, I would say, 1993, 94. So the first thing was there was two, the South Birmingham Health Authority funded two lines for HIV and AIDS. And so I had to do research into why there was two lines and should they rationalize it down to one. So I had to go and visit all these different places and met all these people. And the reason why was because when AIDS first came to the fore in the early 80s, and it was mainly gay men, the council didn't want anything to do with it. Right? Oh, yeah. That's how deeply, and I was sitting listening to these people's stories when I was 22, right? And believing them, it's like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. So then the gay guys started their own um, line. So they started a line because the council didn't want anything to do with it. And then when it became clear it was a it was a crisis, the mm-hmm. council then obviously had to to do. But again, they still didn't want anything to do. So there was already an existing AIDS lifeline, and mm-hmm. they started AIDS Line West Midlands. And so both of these things were being funded by the South Birmingham Health Authority. But by the nineties, that there was more. I'm not going to say it was the best, but there was more. And this was all about the time when the age of consent for uh, gay men was coming down, was under debate in Parliament as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I was like rooting, rooting, rooting for it to come down. It came down to 18 and some people were like, yay. But I was like, no, no, no. I was still disappointed mm-hmm. because it should have been this to my mind's eye. So that was something I was really embedded in at that point. And again, it was it was all areas. And then the second one was about complementary therapies. And the reason was, and this is one of the reasons why I have so much disdain for out there ideas from people who aren't properly educated, was people who had AIDS at that point, there was nothing to help them. Now there's there's mm. many drugs you can be on that will help you to maintain your health over a long period of time and you can lead a normal and long life. But then it was just when the AZT trials were coming in. So people were absolutely desperate, desperate. And one of the things was, if you drink your own piss, then you can, you know, you, you've heard this and you're in the wellness industry. If you drink your own piss, it will give you more antibodies and blah, blah, blah. So what you've got is an immuni- immunocompromised, vulnerable man uh, or woman. But main, the, the main people who I was seeing were gay guys. And because I, w- I had to go and do like a, a longitudinal study and I, w- I was going down to the AIDS clinics in London and in uh, Birmingham and other places to kind of find out what was good, what complementary therapies we should be funding mm-hmm. and where it should be cut off. Because when it got to the point where people were drinking their own piss and you're immunocompromised and your piss isn't clean mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, you are in danger. But you're also incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Massages, great. Pilates, well, I don't think Pilates was a thing then. I don't really know about Pilates, but like um, Alexander Technique, great. You know, mm-hmm. all that good stuff that kind of, or like, you know, just things that helped people talk therapies, all these mm-hmm. kinds of things at the time. Uh, aromatherapy, anything that just helps you to feel a bit better in your sickness as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. The emotional side of, of, of dealing yeah. with sickness yeah. and or crisis. Exactly. So important. 
uh, so it's not to heal you it's to kind of but this is what happens and this is you, you know that I have such an aversion for these kind of loony therapies because yes. those people are so narcissistic that they don't even think to themselves this is a vulnerable person who could quite possibly get an a life-threatening infection from this no I believe that piss has antibodies in it that can heal you you know it's like how wow. you know you know <laughs> wow <laughs> so that's that's the kind of roots of that and then this time so, go on this time in your third year in university going out into the world and using your skills but also like you know, your personality up to date, right? It seems like, you know, you were relying on a lot of the things that you you experienced and, and the way your personality developed up till now. Mm. How did that experience, now you're getting into like real life, like it feels to me like you're on the forefront of your field, right? You're dealing with real life psychological issues. You're dealing with the establishment, oh, yeah. the way society has structured their support for these marginalized, you know, individuals, and, you know, you mentioned that this was such a key part in what you eventually and how you bring this into your coaching and into yourself as a professional. I'm just I'm fascinated with, like, how do you see if you're looking back and you're sharing, like, what impact this time of your life had, including the university? What what would you share with us there? Oh, that's such a great question, Ange. And just something shifted slightly as you asked that question, because as I tell these stories and I look at that person, let me tell you, that person was never thought they were doing enough. Mm. They thought they were underdoing everything. This is, again, checkbox ADHD stuff. So it's really interesting, isn't it? And again, there was, and don't get me wrong, like, it's, it's such a good question. I'm a little um, lost for words how to answer it. But I think it is that, well, from this position, it's like, wow, I packed in a lot. I was also captaining the badminton team, God knows how. And at 20 years old, I was driving a bus full of people around. I mean, across the country to go to tournaments and stuff like that. I mean, but I still thought I was a lazy mother and I thought I was just useless and I was not living up to my potential and all this kind of good stuff as well. But now I'm like, you are doing, you were busy, girl. You were good. And I was maintaining a very healthy social life, let me tell you. <laughs> And living the 90s to the full. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's really interesting. And, and coming back to that particular phase, I'm really seeing the connection between the way I live my life now in a little, a slightly different way. But like, you know, it wasn't only gay guys that I was with at the time. I also had to go and visit all the like the working women's groups. In fact, it was a woman who her name was Hillary. I don't remember her surname. They had a caravan in the car park of the South Birmingham Health Authority and they did outreach with all the working women in the city because they were also one of the populations mm. that was experiencing the highest uh, incidence. And then also just down the road from the place I lived actually was a intravenous drug users clinic. And I went in there and I would talk to the intravenous drug users. And of course, all the people who managed the facilities and so on as well, um, just to kind of find out what their take was on whatever was happening, the, uh, the phone lines and the complementary therapy stuff as well. And it was that woman, Hillary, who gave me a copy of the female eunuch and said, read this. And I was like, Jermaine Greer. But um, there was a guy called Mark Bestel. So again, there's always, um, his nickname was Beastie. And uh, our friend used to be his boyfriend as well. Sadly, he died of a heart attack. I mean, it's there's just like, 
the irony is not lost on me that he was fighting so hard for like really hard. I'm not surprised now thinking about it because it was such a fuck up, but like he was fighting so hard for the rights and the wellness and the health of uh, the people in the city who had AIDS and HIV. But he said something to me. And again, it's one of those things because I'm a Guardian reader, right? So I'm always at the kind of forefront of the latest, you know, left wing kind of stuff, a socialist kind of stuff, liberal stuff. And I said, well, of course, it's not a, it's not a gay disease, is it? And he said, yes, it is, Sarah. And don't let anybody tell you any different because that is damaging. And I was like, wait, what? And again, he just rearranged my and I was like, can you explain that to me? And he said, when you move it away from that, when you move funding, because he mm. knew it from like, you know, that kind of Sarah Jean Rosito kind of like very, very social impact point of view. He said, when you remove funding from the gay men's community and it stops being people telling themselves, oh, it's not a gay disease, so I'm all right, you're going to spike it again. It mm. has to be, mm. it's a gay disease and this disease and this disease. And it, of course, those three populations I just said were the most at risk right. at the time. Um, but he really twisted my melon on that. And that was great. And that's, I'm always looking out for people who are kind of experts, not knobheads, not narcissists, not people who like the sound of their own voices, but like people who really know their stuff from many, like from the that breadth and depth who have got that amazing capacity and can call a 22-year-old, you know, enthusiastic kind of social warrior out and just twist my melon. <laughs> Happens all the time now. Happens all the time. I have to be so uh, careful and quiet with it. So I just wanted to mention him as well. I feel really passionate about it. But so he was a game changer, a massive game changer, RIP, Beastie. Yeah. <laughs> so university... Oh. Then I graduated from university and just had a very chaotic few years from 95 when I graduated till when I came here in 2001. They were fabulous. They were outrageous. I had some fantastic boyfriends who I had like musicians, skateboarder, DJ, um, you know, and really lived a very full life, I shall we say. Um, but at the same time, I was well aware that I was falling well behind my peers. Mm. Um, in terms of my kind of finances and stuff like that. But I did some really interesting things. So when I, all through university, I worked in local pubs to to boost my grants, which my mum and dad very generously gave me. And um, thanks, mum and dad, um, for, for paying for me to go to university. What an absolute gift. And then, um, uh, but I also topped it. Obviously, it wasn't a living wage. It was very generous, but, you know, so I worked in pubs. And then when I finished university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So the people who worked, the area manager, the corporate guy who worked in the pubs that I worked in was like, Sarah, you should join our graduate training scheme. Mm. So what I did then, and this also all connects, what I did was, uh, and, and I was I was great barmaid. And so I worked in, I was brilliant because I was both clever and I have a regional accent and colloquial. So I've always had that, right? Because mm -hmm. of the way I was raised, because of my upbringing, because of where I lived, because of the schools that I went to and stuff like that. That breadth is there. So, you know, I worked in the what place called the Crown, which was next to the Crown Courts. So I knew everybody from the QCs to the criminals mm -hmm. and was good mates with all of them. 
The pub is the watering hole. Exactly. But also, again, that's where people tell you the secrets. You learn about people's mm-hmm. lives. I always used to have a little another little phrase. Even then, when I was like 24, 25, every suit has a story. I just learned so much. Then I started running pubs, right? So for oh. like one or two years, I ran pubs, right? I was I the no boss. idea. Yeah, when I was in my 20s. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was managing pubs. It was great. Um, but also like you, you, again, it's like you haven't lived until you've had a pub full, you're 25 or 26 and you've got a pub full of drunk people who don't want to go home. Right. And there's me, this kind of like, there was 20 kilograms less of me then, but I still had that kind of presence and you can Mm -hmm. dial it up. And I've got that really kind of Liverpool thing going on. Like I had to learn to be hard as well, really mm-hmm. hard, like fighting right. hard, kind of hard because of the way things were at school. And so I just, I mean, I learned so much then as well, like so much. I learned, I, I, I lived in a village for a while and ran a little village pub. And then I lived in another village for the same people and ran the restaurant for them. And I ran city centre pub in, in Birmingham. Um, that was for like two years. And then uh, for about two years, and then I'd had enough of that. So I started working in restaurants. Then I'd had enough of that. And then I started working uh, for Telewest, which was a phone company. And that's what I was talking about before, Jill Hadley. Mm -hmm. And I went in there just as a temp. And then again, this is quite a normal story for me. It's like I went in as a temp because I wanted to stop working in pubs and restaurants. And then... I was very quickly invited to join a full-time team and then made a manager. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting because it was like um, data protection and um, uh, liaising with the police, liaising with the uh, other law enforcement agencies, both in in here and in uh, Mm -hmm. overseas who needed uh, phone uh, data to do like, to do, like, for example, if there's a kidnap and they need a phone number really quickly to call somebody or something like that. And we our job was to protect the data of our customers while at the same time handing over the data that they need. And then we also had like a home office area as well. Um, and this was before mobile phones and before 9-11 when all the laws changed. So very, very, very strict. And so interesting. Yeah, it was really, it was interesting, but it was also an office job. And then at some point yeah. I was just like, Adam, that's what happened in 90, in year 2000, I was on my way home from a friend's wedding. I had a massive car accident, massive car accident. Um, I was cut out the car, taken to hospital on an A-board, told not to move, had my clothes cut off me. I was fine because they won't let you move until they've mm-hmm. um, x-rayed you to check you haven't got any damage in your right. back there. But for the grace of God, go I. And um, my car was a write-off. Me and my boyfriend were just left in the hospital. like, okay, you can go now. And I was like, I have no clothes. And um, what am I supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? We don't have anything. Like all my stuff's in the oh, car wow. that's gone off to the wrecker's yard. So I called my friend who'd been at the wedding as well, and she came and got us from about an hour away, and we stayed at her house for the night. I had all bruises across me from the seatbelt, and my knees were bruised from the car coming into my knees. Mm. And um, I was a right mess. And I just remember sitting on my sofa that week, crying my eyes out, thinking, what am I doing? And that was like the next week I got the Guardian. Tuesdays was education day. I put a pin in a thing about Japan. The process was... 
if it's resume only, that's CV only first. If it's CV and covering letter second. If it's CV covering letter and something else, that's the third choice. So the first one was just like resume only, sent it off, got an interview, met my friend April at the interview, who I think you know. And um, we both got the job and we were here. That was in February. So the mm-hmm. accident happened in December. And that's when Jill Hadley facilitated all the like, if you leave on this day, right. you get all these holidays, those holidays will take you over into next year. So you'll get your bonus. What an absolute darling. And then, um, and then I was here in May, in Japan in May. Wow, that's- Yeah, it was fast. And then, and my boyfriend who I adored, we just kind of, we didn't really split up very well. We weren't, I think what I would say is I adore him, um, but I think we just kind of knew that we weren't quite right. And life was taking you in other places. And he moved to South South America and he met a Colombian dentist and I met Keisuke mm-hmm. and he got married the same month as me. Oh, wow. And I asked, I asked him like, do you want to come to, do you and your uh, wife want to come to our wedding? And he was like, We've just moved to Manchester from Chile. They were living in Chile. We've just, no, Venezuela. They were living in Venezuela. And you guys, we've just moved to Manchester from Venezuela. And she's a bit overwhelmed. So I think coming to my ex's wedding might be a bit much for her. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I have like a million questions about how you got started in Japan and what happened, how you met Kay. But I think because of time, I'm going to like boil down this question to ask you, tell me about the corporate years, which I ah. think kind of is some of your years in Japan, right? Yeah. Like, like what was the corporate time like for you? Uh, it must have been rich in other ways. And I'm sure there were learning curves and maybe, maybe a little bit of, you know, not feeling super like you fit in or super comfortable, but then maybe surprising yourself in other areas. And it's kind of what I want to hear about is what was that like for you? And, you know, for the the Sarah that I'm still, I still have in my mind that ginger Sarah, who's like doing really well here, but then also kind of rubbing edges over dying. Dying. And maybe, you know, because like, um, then what was your community, your home base? What was your church like? during those years or did you not have that space oh yeah no um I mean April has been a kind of constant through all of that and I've, I've always been very lucky with my friends like mm. I have I don't know I just have the most delicious dis- even the ones I've fallen out with were fantastic you know um I, but I've always had really great uh friends so four years teaching English absolutely rubbish and um, the first year and a half was with kids. That was brilliant because I got to learn. I went to a different kindergarten every day in all remote places in Kanagawa. So that's how I learned how to do trains. And it's how I learned how to read ka- uh, hiragana, right? Mm-hmm. Yoko ha ma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mato. Um, and so uh, it's a bit of a full circle moment coming back to Kanagawa. Anyway, so so after four years, I was just like done with it. I'd started to be a tutor at Waseda. And this is like, again, so... A friend, Carla, had invited me to kind of apply to Waseda to become a tutor there, Waseda University. So that was a bit more interesting because it's like university students and they're quite motivated at Waseda. Um, But it was still teaching English. Then I was invited to, again, by her husband to interview for this corporate training company called Seven Seas. So I interviewed for Seven Seas in 2005, got in, 
loved it. Everybody was so motivated in there. It was quite a new company. There was this woman in there called Melissa. Uh, she was called Melissa Church at the time, but then married uh, another guy who worked in there. So uh, Wes, she was one of those people. She was one of those people who just opened my eyes to be like, oh my God, you are so confident. You are so humble. You are so, and I don't mean humble like modest. No, no, I don't. I mean like, she was willing to put herself out there, make mistakes, be vulnerable in what she did. She worked really, really hard, too hard, I would say. But um, And she just kind of opened my eyes up to like what the possibilities for a woman was mm. of how to be and behave in life. She was brilliant. Wow. Um, and again, we're not best mates and we rubbed each other up the wrong way on many an occasion. But I still recognize her value and her game changerliness in my life and other people's. And she continues to do that now. She's in a leadership wow. position with Uni Unilever now. And very well regarded and very well rewarded. So then I entered there as a consultant. So those two years, that my first two years in, in Tokyo, I actually, I was teaching English, but I was behaving more like a business. So it was mm -hmm. more like uh, I had a client here, a client there, a client here. So I, and I had to be really good at what I was doing. Otherwise I wouldn't get all the money, right? So I wouldn't, uh, they would choose other right. teachers over me. So I learned how to kind of be uh, a business person, an entrepreneur mm -hmm. in that way. And then in 2005, I joined Seven Seas and I just loved it. The key client was Microsoft. Um, I just loved working with these people. And at that point, you are going in and you were doing this, we called it consultation. It was kind of like a, a like communication slash coaching. Melissa brought this really strong, Melissa and Adrienne brought these very strong coaching bent to the way we were there. So there's always going to be a in second language, a communication elements. And then the rest was like listening to them pitching to their mm -hmm. non-Japanese clients or to each other. It start it ended up, it was there till 2012 when I, uh, when I quit and started my business. So then I, I started out there as a consultant. Then I was invited to become a certified consultant, then a senior consultant. Then I was invited to join the business and I went full time and I was like the learning and development coordinator there. So I had like a, uh, an in-house role and I was still doing some of the out outside role as well that changed when the Lehman shock happened because they had to cut all the consultants because we lost two key clients and um, so we cut the consultants and then I had to go back out in the field again and kind of earn my salary um, so then that was when I was like whoa this is not what I signed up for and right? when did the the, the coaching bug turn from like how did that evolve in you and oh, when yeah. that idea when you w did you have like a eureka moment you're like that yes what I'm gonna do yes i did well first of Tell all me about it it was a training session with adrienne and mel and they did this kind of like the difference between coaching training mentoring teaching and i was like oh my god this is amazing and they said we want you to bring a kind of coaching flavor into the room and i instantly switched and the results were amazing and i loved it then i joined few for empowering women i was also singing in the british embassy choir at the time so i sing soprano uh, mezzo soprano i can't remember what it's called now second soprano i can't remember what you call it now anyway soprano sing soprano in the british embassy choir and one of the people who was there was working at pwc as the hr person and she came up to me and said i'm doing a thing at the career strategy seminar for few and I was like wow this looks interesting um so I went and another friend was speaking there as well and that was like I met Laurie Sarah Jean Rosito Julia Maida Lauren Shannon 
I mean, these are all people who have been pivotal in my life or who are Mary Fiddler. And I just sat there and uh, Elizabeth Hildebrand spoke. Catherine, I can't think of her name. She writes for Wallpaper and all things like that. Just listening to them, like one woman was like, yeah, I, I rented a little tiny flat next to our next to our house so that had a little office and I was like that's a thing people do this what (laughs) my mind was just blown and of course Anne Good was there and Anne Good was facilitating the whole thing so she was facilitating the panel she talked about coaching and I was like what so then I rent I hired her as a coach and in the first session Mm. I was just on the on the floor like this must have been in 2009 I said 2008 2009 and I was just like oh my god this is such a relief just couldn't believe it. Like the way she spoke to me, the way that we reframed things, the way she coached, the kind of thing she gave me. So there was these two things running at the same time. I started getting coached. Few uh, was like, what? And then when I, so again, there's that thing. So I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, you know, it didn't really fit into the company I was working at. Like I loved the work and everything, but I just didn't fit in. And there was some new people who'd arrived who were just horrible. Like I'm going to say toxic personality. One, everybody else was brilliant. And that was horrible. And I just didn't want to be there anymore. But it took me three years, right? So then I got coached by Anne Good first. And then Catherine North started putting out her wares. So I joined her very first ever queen sweep it was called the clean sweep it was six weeks there was me Diane Love Mary Fiddler some other amazing people in this like six-week program together and again I was just like wow and then I was introduced to Danielle Laporte through there and then Marie Forleo Mm. and then uh, Leonie Dawson and then Jennifer Lee and then they were all doing these summits for all these other kind of wild entrepreneurs and I was just like this is me that you are all me it's funny, one of my clients asked me last week, oh, you know, congratulations on you. And the kind of X factor question, like, you know, did you really ever imagine that you would be where you are now 10 years ago? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought it'd be a bit better, to be honest with you. <laughs> I thought I'd be a bit richer, a bit more famous. <laughs> It's like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do the kind of standard answer and be like, no, it's amazing. I can't believe that a diamond has come out of the rough. You know, what a fucking bullshit. I was just like, yeah, I definitely thought everything. I dreamed it all up, right? So, um, and that's why I'm excited now, Ange, to kind of go Mm. put a line in the sand underneath the 10 year and then dream up the next 10, Ooh, the next. 20 years in a really sustainable way that will take me through to my early 70s. Um, I find that so thrilling to to imagine what I'm what what I'm going to do from now. It's terrifying as well, because you know what you what it's like when you've got your own business, you're an entrepreneur, you think I'm never going to get another client ever. What's happening to me? I'm going to be oh, it's like oh, I'll be all right. I think I should be all right. I think I've got a good team. I've got good ideas. I've got skills. <laughs> I've got like 50 years worth of evidence. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, if you look back, you have lots of evidence to show so yeah and that there was nothing arrogant about that that answer either it was just very very honest I think that the the creepy answer would have been like no I'm so proud of myself or something like that would have been like the creepy out of integrity set piece the default narrative that would have been the default narrative Mm, oh I better I better play up to this question it was like oh hell yeah (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> I imagine myself in my own, you know, uh, mm. uh, office slash studio near the beach. It, it was a bit different to how I imagined it, you know, uh, looking fab. <laughs> well, I think it's really amazing. And I love that you've just mentioned all these women and, and, the reason so is that because we I'm realizing now I'm thinking I'm going game changers, you know, because of game changers, right? And it accelerates. And in those those couple years after, you know, after being in Tokyo for a while, which also set you up for the entrepreneurship mentality, which was, you know, a staircase to this. And then you meet all these amazing women, which it's I mean, makes me gives me goosebumps because mm-hmm. I know some of these women you're talking about. I've had a similar experience, you know, when I was right at that moment in life, walking into few, meeting you and and so many other women in that circle and just what it can do, how much it can impact you and and how much finding, you know, people who are at the right, you know, mentality that match you and then help elevate you, like how important that can be. So then that kind of leads into to my next question, which is like, okay, you've had a decade now, good times, bad times, I'm sure with so many different stories, running Sarah Furia coaching, and you have inspired and helped elevate so many successful people. What's happening next? Like, so where are we going? And, and kind of like, did you decide that, oh, you want to make a, a strategic shift in your business? Did this come suddenly? Tell us a little bit about the story between SFC first 10 years and SFC where you are with dreaming. Well, wow, that was quite an event. I'm really chatty. I talked a lot. I hardly let Angela get any questions in, but I enjoyed it so much. It's so interesting listening back on my life and how I tell my story. It's different every single time. And I really thank those previous versions of myself for bringing me to here. I'm so excited about what's going to happen next. And in two weeks time, we'll find out even more because there's going to be a part two of my story because I talked so, so much to Angela and she had even more things that she wanted to bring out. I had such a good childhood. I'm so lucky in many ways, but you know, undiagnosed ADHD can cause a lot of problems and stress. And now I'm at this point in life where things are going to change. So watch this space. I had a fabulous party on Sunday to celebrate my 10 year in business. I feel so blessed and thankful to everybody who's listening and everybody who's been part of my journey. So thanks so much for listening.